This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. The COP26 climate talks are just a month away, and world leaders are to meet to discuss steps to combat climate change. But what will COP mean for businesses in Asia, the world's biggest emitting region? Asia produces more than half of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, and industry is responsible for about a quarter of those emissions. As the pressure builds on Asia's business sector to reduce its carbon footprint as the world aims to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, CEOs are faced with a tricky dilemma. How can they keep profits up but emissions down? Joining the Eco Business Podcast to address this dilemma is Malavika Bambawala, Asia-Pacific Head of Sustainability Solutions at Omji Impact, which helps businesses reduce their environmental footprint. Welcome to the podcast, Malavika. Thanks for having me, Robin. First of all, Malavika, I wanted to ask you, um, what can we expect from COP? What are the key themes that Asian businesses need to look out for? Yeah, thanks, uh, Robin. I think COP26 uh, obviously is a very exciting uh, uh, feature this year, and especially in a year that sort of has been plagued by, you know, catastrophic floods, wildfires, heat waves, uh, and the need, I think the need to act on climate change has never been more urgent. So uh, I think all eyes are on COP26 in that sense. And as the hosts of COP26, the UK has basically called for the attendees, uh, you know, to submit more ambitious emissions targets uh, for 2030. So basically help ramp up those targets and to also raise contributions to climate adaptation and mitigation funds. And finally, to finalize the rules which would govern the implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement, which was made in 2015. So I think all to say that basically, if uh, if the parties align on these things, I think one of the uh, and one of the key outcomes of this meeting would be to come in uh, to an agreement over Article Six, which is the only outstanding uh, item under Paris Agreement, which provides rules for international cooperation between countries on market and non-market based approaches. So basically, this would effectively enable a global price on carbon through the establishment of a marketplace for carbon trading and provide you know, uh, more certainty on the direction towards where carbon is headed. So I think the biggest thing that comes out of this for the Asian businesses is that there could be a clarity on market mechanisms and uh, if a price of carbon gets established uh, globally. And that would help to, uh, you know, uh, to clarify how capital can flow seamlessly. There will be more certainty for businesses and that means less hesitation. I think what has happened in Asia, especially, is that there has been perhaps a little bit more hesitation around, you know, what technology should we invest in? How should we proceed? And I, what I'm hoping to do, I mean, what I'm hoping the COP26 does is provides more certainty on the direction forward. And, and, and you know, once these rules are clarified, I think um, all stakeholders, including customers, including, um, you know, financers, et cetera, will start to expect more from businesses uh, and businesses will then be forced to act more conclusively on climate change. Right. And this part of the world in Asia, um, governments tend to move first and policy tends to set the agenda. Um, for example, in Singapore, you mentioned carbon markets, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Singapore's had a go at setting a price on carbon. Um, Are we likely to see more mechanisms like that uh, roll out across Asia Pacific and and then uh, uh, really throw down the gauntlet for businesses to to reduce their emissions? Well, that's certainly the hope. I think that if there is a more definitive, uh, you know, uh, establishment of uh, rules from the uh, from the COP26, 
then the hope is that there, once there is more certainty, governments will be actually one of the first to, to set targets uh, or, or to act on climate change. I think there'll be more definite flow of uh, capital towards, uh, uh, towards carbon reduction. And that will enable an, 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 a, you know, a more certain international um, market for, for carbon. And that will enable, I think, capital to flow more seamlessly. And I think governments will definitely, uh, well, hopefully act on that uh, through different types of mechanisms. And I think those mechanisms take uh, different uh, versions, right? So there could be uh, either tax, uh, tax related uh, policies, or there could also be subsidies, um, or there could be sort of uh, minimum performance, uh, you know, RPO type standards, which allow uh, greener technologies, which are currently more expensive to be adopted and scaled um, uh, in the future. Absolutely. And one thing that we've seen a lot of are um, net zero targets. So it started off in the West, I guess, with um, lots of big Western uh, multinationals announcing that they're going to go net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Now, we've seen this start to happen in Asia Pacific as well, with the likes of CDL, Fraser's Property, even Petronas, big oil company, um, Olam, etc., saying that they're going to go net zero. Do you think we're likely to see uh, more of these net zero targets, uh, Malavika, around COP? And, and what's your personal view on, on net zero and uh, ensuring that a net zero target is what it says it is? Robin, I'm hoping that there is actually more net, uh, net zero targets uh, because I think that uh, we are still uh, in APAC, probably running a little bit behind um, the globe. Uh, you know, I recently had a look at the statistics around uh, how many companies have signed up for science-based targets. And I think it was less than uh, less than a quarter that were coming from APAC. So I would actually welcome more targets. Uh, I think that's a good thing. My personal view on net zero, I think net zero is a, uh, is a, is a great uh, uh, target to achieve in the sense that uh, what we are trying to say is that we're going to reduce the emissions. Uh, so we're going to try our best to decarbonize through legitimate measures to the extent that we can run down our emissions all the way to you know uh, as low as we possibly can and then when we have that last bit of residual emissions that are really really hard to abate because they are extremely expensive or you know uh, the technologies are not yet uh, commercialized etc then we will abate those emissions through the use of offsets so offsets are only used as the option of last resort in this whole net zero um, you know definition and that's, that's why I, I, I believe that in principle, it's, it's a great uh, way to actually uh, set a target. Now in practice, uh, you know, there need to be more, more and more rules established and more standardization of how that is measured. Um, because if that's not the case, then of course uh, it can be open to misinterpretation. Companies are starting to um, look at climate change as both the biggest threat and the biggest opportunity, right? So, Climate change is fundamentally disrupting several industries and several sectors. And I think companies are realizing that they better start to grasp what that means for them and how are they gonna change their operating models significantly, not just at the margin. So, um, you know, companies are moving away from that thinking about like, oh, this is gonna increase my costs and this is gonna lower my returns to thinking about what are those big opportunities and a longer term strategy reset from from uh, climate change, and but the but the challenges are you know uh, how do I how do I get there how do I get to net zero when a lot of the technology is actually not commercially viable, how do I measure I mean in fact even before that like how do I measure my my emissions what is scope three you know uh, how do I measure that are my targets ambitious enough 
and then how do I get there? Absolutely. Scope three, which is the the full value chain, trying to reduce the uh, the carbon from the full value chain, including how a product or a service is, is used. Um, that's that's a challenge that I think a lot of companies are, are really struggling with, and we get that to, get to that in a minute. You mentioned earlier on, Malavika, carbon offsets. Do you think that companies in this part of the world are relying too heavily on the promise of offsetting their carbon? Well, I think companies at the moment are to be honest, not, uh, um, you know, as I said, there are, you know, 60% of companies in APAC, this is based on a survey we did, don't even have targets. So there may be, uh, uh, so there isn't a reliance on anything right now, because there isn't a certainty of what needs to be done going forward. I think that there could be a scenario where a lot of companies start to rely on uh, offsets. But the problem is that if you look at the global picture, there's only a certain amount of uh, offsets that can be used uh, to abate the carbon. So if you, you know, if you're getting, if you have a certain carbon budget to get to by 2030, you know, offsets can only get us there by I think about a third or so. I don't have a direct answer to your question on whether companies are relying too much on offsets. I think that was the case. Uh, I would say in the last decade. Uh, for sure that people were making carbon neutrality claims and you know next thing you know they've completely offset their carbon emissions and you know dusted their hands off and said i'm done and that is that thinking is changing and that's why i'm optimistic because i think companies are realizing that that's not enough nobody's getting fooled by that you know all stakeholders are putting pressure so what else do i need to do and that's how this term net zero has come through it's no more is it neutrality it's about net zero it means first i do the hard work and only then i offset were you at Ecosperity recently, Malavika, the Tamasek run um, sustainability event? What, what struck me about Ecosperity was a uh, remark by Sonny Vergesi from um, the CEO of Olam. He said that he's spoken to 250 chief executives mm. and none of them have a clue how to, and all of them are saying that they're going to go net zero, but none of them have a clue how to get there, which I find was a, was a, was a quite worrying remark. Um, and I did wonder what he meant. Um, and so I guess my question is for you is what are chief executives struggling with most as they um, try to reduce their emissions? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a great question. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, the, what people are really struggling with is uh, I think there's a little bit of this chicken and egg hesitation around the world, right? Should the policy move first? Should the businesses move first? You know, should, because it, because what I would say is the biggest problem with net zero is all those bottlenecks and hurdles to implementation. And it all comes down to one word, uncertainty. Business does not like uncertainty and business finds it hard to operate in uncertainty. I am willing to make a large investment if I know that uh, in the longer run, there is going to be a return on this investment. But right now what's happening is everyone's watching what the other is going to be doing first. So that is what is leading to this huge amount of uncertainty. And, and you know, you're just waiting for the other person to make the first move and then you will follow immediately. So, and, and the reason for that is these, all of these technologies that are leading to decarbonization come with very high costs and their costs will only come down if there's wide, uh, wide adoption and scaling of those technologies. So why do you think Malavika that, uh, Interesting stat you mentioned earlier on that 60% of, of businesses was in APAC don't have targets yet, don't have net zero targets yet. Yeah. Um, I, I did wonder whether, you know, net zero has come under so much scrutiny with um, 
critics saying, oh, this is it's greenwash or overclaiming. I wonder how that's affected businesses. Um, are, are businesses reluctant to even start because they're worried about that sort of backlash of being accused of, of not being genuine in, in their approach to decarbonization? You know, so I think there's a, there's a different story there uh, by region. I think uh, in APAC, there is uh, definitely a higher burden on APAC to, to, uh, because we are growing region, right? So there's uh, economic growth that's taking place. Uh, and then people question, you know, are we making intensity targets or are we making absolute targets? And how is this going to affect our affordability of energy, affordability of basic services, uh, economic growth, et cetera. And so, and there's also been this uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, weight around technology transfer from the, you know, from the richer countries to the, um, to the more developing ones. You know, how do we get the technology so that we can implement those technologies uh, and so that we don't lose out on the growth side of things. So I think on, in APAC, there's perhaps been a little bit more hesitation uh, on this issue because we, we are still waiting for that clarity in terms of like, how much is uh, that burden? You know, how do we get to net zero in a way that doesn't affect our economic growth, our affordability, our quality of life, et cetera. To me, one, one big question is how do we enable our governments here to push forward on certain technologies and to create um, you know, subsidies or support uh, standards for new technologies that can enable these technologies to scale. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier on, um, one of the things on the table at COP, which is really important, is, is of course, green finance, adaptation and mitigation finance. Um, industrialized countries had promised, I think it's back in 2000, well, mid-2000s, 100 billion in finance to help uh, developing countries adapt and mitigate uh, climate change. That needs to come through around COP, um, doesn't it? Um, mm. yeah. and, 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 and that will obviously trickle down and affect the business community eventually, won't it? How do you see that, that piece working? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's the challenge of uh, um, how do businesses, uh, I mean, how, how does that trickle down? And what are the mechanisms in which that kind of financing is made available? How easy is it to access that financing? Who accesses that financing? And how does it enable businesses to implement their plans um, once they have that technology? So uh, I think uh, you know, there are, there's, there's definitely all of that uncertainty around it. But I think if that does happen, uh, that's definitely good news. And I think what we need to do then see is a quick scale up of some of the, some of the um, technologies that are almost in commercial stages, you know, you, we're talking about uh, potentially cleaner forms of, uh, you know, uh, sort of electrification uh, of transport, you're talking about buildings, uh, technology, we're talking about maybe new types of green fuels, um, you know, how can we actually enable um, these technologies to be scaled at the highest levels so that then they can be adopted, not just by the big businesses, but then, uh, you know, by SMEs as well, the small and medium enterprises. Absolutely. Are there any um, businesses in this part of the world that you'd see as real trailblazers in uh, decarbonizing uh, companies you look to that are uh, market leading in their efforts to reduce their emissions, Malavika? That's an interesting question. You know, we've been uh, working uh, with the tech sector um, that has been embracing green technologies. And I think that's primarily uh, driven by um, the West, so you know, companies with uh, headquarters in the West, I think, who have um, rapidly increasing footprints 
thanks to you know the the, the amount of uh, carbon that, for example, data centers might actually be uh, consuming, thanks to that rapid growth in digital technology, fueled in part by COVID, uh, has led the tech sector to, I, I think, be leading on the on the green front. You know, so they've really gone uh, uh, out to sort of look for green forms of power, look for lowest possible, uh, you know, uh, PUEs, um, uh, pow power consumption uh, on data centers, for example, and and they kind of continue to embrace uh, innovation and push the boundaries there. Um, I think uh, the, the other uh, sectors that are sort of looking at, and, and you know, and it's it's a slightly unfair question because I think in certain cases, in uh, certain sectors, it's very hard. Uh, you know, for example, I think if you look at big oil, uh, you know, it's very hard to figure out what to do next. Whereas I think in the case of uh, perhaps uh, real estate or manufacturing, there are solutions, some solutions available which are more low hanging that can be embraced more quickly. Finally, I would just say that the finance sector has started to lead the charge. Um, you know, I mean, you see, for example, uh, you know, I mean, there's of course a requirement now, you know, SGS came up with a requirement to uh, for all companies to report um, climate risk. But I think what is also happening is that um, uh, the, the finance sector is also starting to make a lot of uh, noise around ESG related investments and requiring their portfolio companies to have stringent uh, ESG requirements. And that's a good thing because it changes the course of capital flow. And if that doesn't happen, then it becomes very difficult to create a business case for businesses. Now, a final question for you. Now, you mentioned earlier on, Malavik, it's really interesting that it seems to me a, a huge dilemma that Asia, Asian businesses are facing, that it's a fast-growing region, but there's so much pressure on Asia-Pacific to decarbonize. Because um, most, most of the world's emissions um, come from Asia Pacific. So it's a tricky question, but how hopeful are you? How optimistic are you uh, that COP26 will deliver positive news and what that could mean for uh, Asian businesses? IPCC, I think, said, uh, said in their, um, when they called it a code red for humanity, I think uh, the clock is really ticking and climate action needs to be immediate and it needs to be transformational. Uh, and I'm uh, honestly, there is, there is no option but to hope that this really goes through. Uh, and I think it's not just, uh, uh, you know, it's not, not just a moral dilemma anymore. It's frankly, a, uh, it's a requirement uh, that we need to get this right. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually hopeful that people have seen it this time. Uh, you know, I mentioned that I've been in this uh, sector for um, for uh, more than a decade. And I'm really hopeful that this time, I think the, all of this noise and all of this movement is headed in the right direction. I think we have to have uh, some patience, uh, but I agree that uh, we need to continue to push. We need to call out any kind of greenwashing and we need to um, continue to stay hopeful and move towards uh, real actions. That's what we can hope for, isn't it? That, that COP26, um, delivers at least a, a pathway towards uh, concrete action for, for businesses to take. Um, Malavika, thank you so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.